Welcome to the ninth episode of Conversation Series, and I'm your host, Orniki Mitraveli. Today we're hosting eminent sociologist Sinisa Manisevich. We're discussing his book, Grounded Nationalism's Sociological Analysis. Globalization is not the enemy of nationalism. Instead, as this book shows, the two forces have developed together through modern history. Manisevich challenges dominant views which see nationalism as declining social force. He explains why the recent escalation of populist nationalism throughout the world do not represent a social anomaly, but are in fact a historical norm. By focusing on ever-increasing organizational capacity, greater ideological penetration and networks of micro-solidarity, Malisevich shows how and why nationalism has become deeply grounded in the everyday life of modern human beings. The author explores the social dynamics of this grounded nationalism via an analysis of varied contexts from Ireland to the Balkans, and his findings show that increased ideological diffusion and the rising coercive capacities of states and other organizations have enabled nationalism to expand and establish itself as the dominant operative ideology of modernity. Uh, we are thrilled to have... Um, prominent scholar today, another uh, eminent sociologist, um, Sinisha Manisevich, is an award-winning sociologist and the chair of uh, sociology at University College Dublin. Uh, Manisevich's work mainly focused research interests are including the study of war, organized violence, ethnicity, nation states and nationalism, empires, ideology, sociological theory and comparative historical sociology. Professor Mansevich authored over 100 peer-reviewed journal articles and book chapters and has given more than 140 talks in all over the world. Uh, his publications have been translated in a number of languages, Arabic, Albanian, Chinese, Croatian, Persian, Turkish, Portuguese, Japanese, you name it, Serbian, Russian, French, and Spanish. Uh, his most recent books include Why Humans Fight the Social Dynamics of Close-Range Violence by Cambridge University Press, Two co-authored volumes with Stephen Loyal, Comparative Sociological Theory, published Sage, and the book that we'll be talking today, Grounded Nationalism, a Sociological Analysis, published by Cambridge University Press. Previously, uh, Professor Mansevich held re research and teaching appointments at the Institute for International Relations in Zagreb and the Center for Study of Nationalism at Central European University, where he worked with iconic sociologist, anthropologist, and the foundational scholar of nationalism, Ernest Gellner. So, first of all, thank you so much for being with us, Professor Mansevich. Thank you very much, Doranke, also for organizing this event. And before going into the kind of key takeaways of your, of your eminent book, I would uh, ask you to maybe give our listeners some basic definitions of several main concepts which you um, uh, use in your book, such as nation, national identity, nationalism, as opposed to other concepts such as kinship, clan, and residential focus attachments, which you, which you discuss later. So 
if we may ask you, just go through the, some basics and then get into the fundamentals of, of, of the book. Okay. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure about my link. It seems it's breaking constantly when I, but let's hope it, it will work. So thanks again uh, for all of you for being here. And uh, so before I, I move on to the kind of key concepts, perhaps I, I should say something how I see nationalism. So for me, nationalism is, is an ideology and a form of social practice that uh, posits nation as a principal unit of human solidarity and political legitimacy. So in that, in that sense, nationalism is really a meta-ideology. It's, it's a much much thicker uh, form of, of uh, ideological practice than, than liberalism or socialism or conservatism because it can easily blend with all of them. Um, and, and nationalism is also kind of has this, this uh, very strong habitual aspect to it because it, it is... Uh, often appears uh, deeply naturalized and normalized. We take things uh, for nations as self-evident and uh, almost like, you know, whenever you meet somebody, the first question is, you know, what's your name? The second question is, where are you from? And the expectation person will say, I'm from Sweden, I'm from France, I'm from Nigeria, not from a particular town or particular street or particular family. So in a sense, this tells us a lot about how we uh, perceive the world. Uh, but nationalism, uh, for me, it, you know, it's really interesting as a sociological phenomenon. So we do have, you know, kind of this, this, it is a form of political ideology, uh, but it, it's much more than that. So often we talk about nationalism when we see extreme version of it, if you like. So particularly more recently, nationalism has been associated with, you know, populist uh, politics, extreme right, nativism. But nationalism is much wider than that. You know, nationalism can accommodate far left and far right and anything in between. And it's, we will see in some respects, uh, you know, often people focus on nationalism and it, when it's aggressive and it's visible without realizing, you know, that a lot, lot of what is happening is a consequence of things that have been developing for years. So in a sense, uh, I, I approach nationalism as, as, as a particular uh, mode of subjectivity, if you like, in, in a contemporary context, in a modern context, in the last 200 years or so. Uh, and it, in, in that context, it has become a dominant uh, form of, of uh, dominant operative ideology of modernity. Uh, and uh, the key issue why nationalism is so uh, embedded, so powerful, is because of the, uh, the character of the state that dominates in the world that we inhabit today, and that's a nation state. So nation states, all nation states are legitimized to some form of nationalist ideology. Uh, so, so in that sense, they differ from empires, they differ from patrimonial kingdoms, they differ from city-states, they differ from all these kind of other historical alternatives, territorial alternatives that have existed. Uh, and, uh, you know, all, all nation-states invoke the notion of popular sovereignty. The power comes, the power resides in the people, whether this is in, in a democratic sense or, or in an ethnic sense or, or, on a, or some sort of a, a popular sense as, as the kind of communist states did. But all of them invoke that right. Uh, and and in, in a world in which we live, you know, even the United Nations are built on that principle that, you know, that there is no higher power beyond the sovereign nation state. Obviously, what's happening now in Ukraine indicates that, we, we, that the imperial elements of imperial order might be coming back in some form. That's for us perhaps to discuss later. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, until a few days ago, there was that idea that nation state is the ultimate uh, form of uh, territorial, legitimate form of territorial in the world in which we inhabit. So this is something that has been developing for, you know, since 18, late 18th century, but it has become a dominant really after the Second World War, when the nation states have replaced 
uh, all the, the kind of alternative forms of territorial organization. Uh, so when I talk about grounded nationalism, what, what I'm focusing on is really, um, you know, how we've come to where we are in a sense, how nationalism has become dominant mode of political legitimacy and dominant form of, co uh, of collective subjectivity in a modern context. Uh, and uh, for me, uh, uh, you know, there are these four different forms of grounding, and I'm using grounding uh, as, as, a, as a term that tries to capture a variety of processes, both structural and agency-oriented, in order to understand how nationalism historically has become such a dominant and powerful form of, of, of uh, modern subjectivity. So first, I, I argue that nationalism is historically grounded, which means that it, it since kind of late uh, 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 18th century onwards, when it really starts as, 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 a, as a doctrine, you know, we, we find a lot of kind of these ideas, obviously in the Enlightenment, in the Romanticism, and many other kind of ideological movements that that have transpired in that period, and we find kind of empirical articulation of these ideas in the French Revolution, in the American Revolution, in the Latin American Wars of Independence, and a number of other events that have taken place. Uh, so, so the key thing here is that we often think of nationalism as, as a 19th century phenomenon, which is wrong, because 19th century is really the beginning of this process. In, at that time, nationalism was very narrowly defined, very narrowly understand, understood, very narrowly identified with, the, you know, kind of upper and middle class groups. So, so when I talk about historical groundness of nationalism, what I'm referring to is that uh, we, we see how nationalism develops uh, gradually, both vertically and horizontally. So, which means across different social classes. So it starts from these you know, upper middle classes and then moves on in, to incorporate you know, various groups, ultimately urban poor and, and, and peasantry, which would become farmers and, and start identifying with the state European context, really mostly in the beginning of the 20th century and in some parts of Europe even later. Uh, so, so, so in a sense, nationalism starts off historically as a minority phenomenon, a minority project, and then gradually incorporate social strata. So that's the kind of the, the horizontal aspect of this grounding. But then there is a vertical aspect, which is really about how nationalism becomes a global phenomenon. So something that starts in some parts of the world, let's say, in, you know, in mostly in Western Europe, North America, Latin America, elements of Latin America. Uh, you could see also some uh, elements of that present in Japan and few other places. And then after the Second World War becomes really a global phenomenon, you know, in, in the, as, as the decolonization uh, starts off uh, properly from the 50s, 60s onwards, the nation state model becomes the dominant model of, of organizing the globe. Uh, and then nationalism kind of permeates much of the world. It becomes the dominant form of legitimacy. Um, so, so that's the historical grounding. Then I talk about organizational grounding which means essentially that nationalism would not be able to uh, become such a powerful, visible, dominant form of, uh, uh, of uh, ideology if it wasn't uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 developed through specific organizational channels. So initially, we obviously in history know a lot about the secret revolutionary societies, the, the young Italy, the young Switzerland, the, the you know, Turkish uh, Committee of Union and Progress, or uh, Greek Society of Friends or uh, Portuguese Carbonaria. There are so many of these secret societies in the 18th, 19th century, which, which kind of were very small, were not particularly influential early on, but they did kind of create these cells, organizational cells around which some middle class groups were able to uh, start influencing, you know, 
different sectors of population and propagating some nationalist idea, nationalist ideas. Then we see later on larger groups of people, larger organizations, you know, essentially social movements. And the good example here would be in Irish context, uh, you know, the Gaelic League and particularly the uh, GA, the Gaelic Athletic Association, which is a sport, sports association, still very powerful, very influential in, in Ireland. Uh, and it, it started off from this kind of small group and then branched into different organizational cells, so which were built around parishes, linked also with the Catholic Church, uh, so, so the, and with committees and councils and so on. So in a sense, what we see here is how nationalism uh, uh, kind of cannot uh, prosper, cannot expand without these organizational cells. But the main thing really is the state. So once nationalism becomes a, a key, uh, you know, legitimizing principle of the state, then we see how nationalism can and really penetrate uh, majority of society. So, because obviously states uh, control administrative apparatus, judicial apparatus, military, police, uh, in, in many respects also the public sphere. So, so what we see with the, with the state is uh, uh, ability of states to use coercive power uh, to standardize you know, institutions which uh, ultimately work towards homogenizing population in some respects. This is obviously what has happened historically in France in, in particular, but throughout the world. So, so the, the kind of this homogenizing capacity is produced by state power, but it's also produced in some respect by the civil societies. Religious organizations have been very important and Tornick has written on this, uh, you know, in, in, in particularly in the later periods, but not necessarily in the early periods, uh, in, in, in kind of channeling uh, alternative forms of, of na nationalism. Also, private corporations do that in, in different ways. NGOs, sports associations, many others. So these are all organizations, and they all have a, you know, some sort of a, a, a coercive or other capacity, organizational capacity that they can use uh, to, to kind of maintain certain ideas, to impose them, to, uh, to keep them uh, visible, and, and to kind of use them in everyday life. Uh, and we can see, I mean, I could just give an, a really example, which is obvious one you know, how certain ideas and, 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 and historical traumas are, are, if they are not commemorated, if there is no organization behind them, they are not so visible. And the, the obvious example would be here, you know, when, when we compare Holocaust versus, and Armenian genocide, for example, versus the Herero or, or Romani genocides. So one is, you know, Holocaust, Holocaust is very visible, very present, because there are organizations working on commemorating these things, making them visible, making them present. Uh, elements of that are present with Armenian genocide to the lesser extent. But then on the other hand, you know, the genocide of Hereros in Namibia or, or, or Namaka or Romanis in, 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 during the Second World War are largely invisible in a sense because there are no institutions, there are no big organizations, powerful organizations to keep this, this kind of uh, uh, narrative visible. Uh, then thirdly, when I'm talking about grounding, I'm also talking about uh, ideological grounding. Uh, so in a sense, organizations are important, historical trajectories are important, but what's also important is the content of, of ideology. Uh, so uh, nationalism offers certain, uh, you know, ideological uh, principles that appeal to a lot of people. It invokes these grand vistas of collective uh, liberation, emancipation, belonging, uh, so so these, the, a lot of this is built on, on certain moral principles that appeal to human beings, if, if couched in a particular language. You know, principles of justice and liberty and equality and fraternity. 
we can see this, you know, even today now, you know, during this war in Ukraine, how how uh, you know President Zelensky can can invoke these principles to you know let's defend Ukraine. We are Ukrainians. We, we it is about justice. It's about preserving our liberty and equality and all of that. So nationalism can work both ways. You know, it could be aggressive, it could be defensive. Uh, so, so, but the key thing is that nationalist messages are often framed in the language of righteousness. So, so in a sense, it is important to invoke that sense of justice or injustice, uh, also the moral elements of sacrifice of previous uh, generations and, you know, our co-nationals and the sense of moral responsibility because somebody else has died for certain ideas that you have you can invoke this and things like that so we do obviously have a lot of these you know kind of statements uh, made by various statesmen and poets and uh, you know intellectuals like Patrick Pierce in Irish context talking about Ireland unfree shall never be at peace so this is a statement that invokes a lot of these kind of moral connotations and there are many others so in that sense ideological grounding provides a popular justification and mobilization for social action. So without ideology, it's very difficult to, to have nationalism, really. It, it has, you know, often there are a lot of these theories coming from political uh, uh, science and to some extent perhaps from political theory, which argue that nationalism is a thin ideology, unlike liberalism. But I would argue the opposite. It's really a very thick, sociologically very thick ideology because it, you know, it, 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 you have to have a very coherent, uh, plausible narratives that will appeal to millions of people. Liberalism is, is much more abstract uh, or, or, or kind of conservatism even or any others. Well, nationalism is, in, in that sense works easier in, in many respects. Uh, uh, what's also important for ideological grounding is again link with the organizational capacity, organizational power. The fact that states uh, have at their disposal educational systems and often military draft and uh, you know, they could you know, points made by Geller and Anderson and others about compulsory literacy and high literacy rates, uh, standardized educational systems, uh, you know, mass proliferation of, uh, you know, media. Today, obviously, social media play that role as well. Uh, but then states provide welfare provisions, and uh, particularly we know in, in, in a, uh, a Swedish context and generally kind of, uh, you know, the, the notion of a welfare state was an important element for the whole idea of what Sweden uh, is. Uh, and that probably Norway as well and Denmark. Uh, so, so in that sense, we, we can say that nationalism, uh, you know, uh, combines this organizational and ideological uh, grounding. And then the last element that I look at is the, uh, you know, so nationalism is not only about these structural processes, historical processes, it's also about kind of agency. It is about micro-interactional grounding. So that's the fourth type of grounding that I talk about in the book. Uh, and that in involves really because human beings are, are reflective creatures, emotional creatures, uh, also cognitive creatures. So, so in a sense, they do, uh, you know, uh, uh, reflect on what's happening around them. Uh, they often actively or habitually reproduce certain national or nation-centric uh, images and realities and activities. Uh, so in that sense, we can say that nationhood is, is discursively constructed through a lot of what the scholars of banal nationalism focus on, so routine, you know, so, so routine talk, routine interaction, routine enactments of rituals, uh, you know, even everyday consumption, all of these everyday things that we take for granted, Billig and Fox and many others have analyzed. So in a sense, how we reproduce national symbols in everyday encounters. 
but in addition to that, I also emphasize this emotional, strong emotional attachments that we have with people, with our with significant others, with people that matter to us. So these these really strong uh, ties that we have with families, with uh, uh, you know kind of friends. Uh, with lovers, with neighbors, with uh, peer groups, with small groups, essentially people that, uh, you know, are, are matter to us in our uh, people that we encounter in face-to-face -face interaction on a mostly everyday basis. Uh, so, so this is where a lot of emotional energy is generated. Uh, this is where also a lot of these moral uh, ideas are developed and, and, and you know, and have a, this is where meaning is created ultimately. So for nationalism, it is really important to tap into this micro world. Uh, so, so one of the kind of really interesting mechanisms to study is how these big structures like the states, like political parties, like social movements, tap into this micro world, how they use the language of family and, and you know, friends uh, to, to frame an ideological message, national nationalist message. So it's not an accident, obviously, the nationalists always involve these kinship discourses, motherland and fatherland and sisterhood and brotherhood. Uh, you know, all, all ideologies do that. But for, for what's interesting for us is, you know, how nationalism does that, because it does try to link the, the macro and the micro to reconcile kind of often instrumental demands of big organizations such as nation states or political parties with the micro level emotional bonds and moral bonds that that can mobilize social action. So often we have that kind of attempt to project this micro level solidarity onto this canvas of the large scale social organizations. Uh, you know, and, and, and in that sense, I want to say that ideology of nationalism really translates uh, uh, micro solidarities into these national identities in inverted commas. Uh, okay, so, so, so essentially what, I, what I'm arguing in the book uh, is that uh, in order for us to understand how nationalism develops and how it kind of uh, becomes uh, grounded in, in everyday life, in, in the institutions that uh, govern this, this world in the kind of ideological practices, we have to look at the model of the state that has been dominant, uh, particularly since the Second World War, but uh, you know, even the last 200 years or so. Uh, and, and how the nation state model has, has gradually replaced other territorial competitors. So, so in, in a sense, we, you know, focusing on the historical, organizational, ideological, and micro interactional grounding helps us understand that. So that's what I do in the book. And then I also look at the empirical context, historical context from Ireland to the Balkans and uh, other places as well. So I, I don't know whether that's, that's enough for introduction. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you very much. I think it's a, it's a fascinating introduction. And um, um, I had a few questions, and if, if you have um, no willingness to re respond to them, it's especially in chapters four to four, four to nine, you, you're talking about this interesting dynamics about expansionist, nationalist, imperialism, while analyzing the cases, Serbia, Bulgaria, and also you look at the Irish case. So I'm wondering if you can guide our listeners through the case studies which you discuss in the book. Yes, so, so I, I look at, uh, I mean, uh, uh, let's say first uh, part of the book is, is purely theoretical, kind of trying to, to develop this uh, key argument and looking a little bit at the relationship between empires and nation states historically and how we kind of uh, uh, transformed gradually. But I also emphasize that this is it's not inevitable, nation states are not inevitable, and what we are seeing in Ukraine shows this kind of 
you know, uh, there are some overlaps between imperial order and national orders and their attempts to, to kind of, in some respects, go back. You know, obviously, informal empires have existed and still are there. And, you know, not all nation states are of the equal strength. You know, we have, you know, there's always, there are always big powers, which are nation states now, but may have imperial pretensions or imperial ambitions. And sometimes this is informally done, and sometimes it seems we might go back to formal empires. Uh, so, so I talk a little bit about nations and empires and nationalism and imperialism, and then I look at, at uh, you know, uh, in, in, in greater detail, I look at the uh, Balkan case, particularly of the 19th century uh, transformation of, uh, uh, you know, states, the way how uh, Balkan states have moved away from living under uh, Ottoman and uh, Austro-Hungarian imperial rule, and, and, and they were, were gradually developing these kind of uh, state structures. So, so one of the chapters, for example, focuses on, on the role of violence in this process, and often Balkans are associated with a kind of excessive violence, and uh, you know, that's, it's, there's a certain perception, at least in the West, the Balkans have always been uh, producing too much history, <laughs> uh, you know, but essentially too much violence. But what I tried to show is that much of violence there was really linked with the state formation, uh, and it is a 20th century phenomenon. If, if you look, uh, you know, during the, the Ottoman uh, times and during the Habsburg times, uh, you know, this region was largely subdued in the sense it was controlled, obviously, by uh, you know, imperial powers. There were obviously some reprisings and, and violence here and there, but violence really starts escalating much later. So in 19th century, we do have uh, obviously uprisings, you know, first and second Serbian uprising, and we have Greek War of Independence and a number of other wars. But the, the, most of these conflicts are, are, are small-scale conflicts. They don't involve large casualties, apart from the Greek War of Independence, which again was a more or less imperial war fought between Britain and Ottomans and Russians and, and others. Um, uh, but all the other kind of conflicts uh, fought by the uh, newly emerging independent states were small-scale because the states themselves were very weak. They didn't have organizational capacity. There was not much of a, a grounding, organizational grounding in the state. You know, they had a weak administration, you know, very small. When Serbia becomes independent or semi-autonomous, we are talking here about, you know, a handful of bureaucrats that were available. Most of the people were literate uh, elites that would eventually influence development of uh, educational system uh, have come from Austria-Hungary, you know, where they were uh, literate and so on. Uh, there, there are no proper roads throughout the Balkans. There are no proper, proper uh, uh, in, 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 in communication systems. There are no, there are no armies. There, you know, so, so all of these kind of elements that are crucial to state development, they, they are not present. So in a sense, the conflicts tend to be small because the states are quite weak. Uh, and, and nationalism is still very much a, a, a rudimentary phenomenon associated with a very small group of people. So the majority of the population still identifies very locally, with the, with the village, with the, with the, you know, where they live. Religion obviously plays an important uh, a source of uh, identification, but nationhood is a rather abstract category. It doesn't really work. So, so this, this is one of the <laughs> chapters that I develop here. But I also look at the Irish case, which is also interesting in some respects. And uh, one of the chapters focuses on kind of comparing and contrasting, if you like, the Balkan and the Irish example. Because in, in Ireland, there is that emphasis in Irish nationalism of, of being a small nation, Ireland being a small nation, a lot of kind of Irish rhetoric, nationalist rhetoric from 19th century onwards has developed around that idea. You know, we are small, uh, subjugated by this large British empire. We are 
you know, uh, really uh, ha have a small population, have, you know, have, have been uh, dominated and so on. Well, in the Balkans, it's the opposite. Essentially, in the Balkans, rhetoric is about greater, greater Serbia, greater Bulgaria, greater Croatia, greater Albania, greater Greece. Uh, uh, essentially, greater Greece is the original idea the, uh, from which everything starts. The, the, uh, and, 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 you know, in a sense, the, the, some of this invokes ancient kingdoms, uh, you know, that have existed before. And it, it was a rhetoric also used to, to make a case for establishing new states in the 19th century. So Megali idea in Greece was, was really a, an attempt to say there is a reason for Greece to exist as a state. Greece was a great, uh, you know, ancient uh, uh, empire. It had, you know, and also making the Byzantine Empire and everything else. Uh, and similar things, you know, maybe to a lesser extent were present in, in Bulgaria and there's medieval Bulgaria, there's medieval Serbia, medieval Croatia, and so on. So here we have the rhetoric of a greater nation, you know, and, and the emphasis was on expanding the territory, building a larger nation. While in Irish case, rhetoric is about small nation, but in reality, Ireland was, was actually not a small nation in the 19th century. Ireland, if you look at the population, was one of the most populous countries in Europe in the 19th century, especially before the famine of, of you know, 1840s. Uh, and then when a lot of population have emigrated, things like that. Uh, so in a sense, it is an interesting thing how nationalism can uh, deploy different uh, uh, frames, normative frames and ideological frames in order to um, uh, really uh, uh, focus on, on a similar outcome, gaining independence, gaining kind of a full statehood, but, uh, you know, rhetoric shifts. So this is, for me, was interesting comparing Ireland and the Balkans. There are other chapters, really, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I should stop here now and allow Torin Kay for a few more questions. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and another interesting, I think, dimension of the book in chapters 10 and 11, where you're talking about the relationship between globalization and nationalism. And, and, and it'll be interesting to hear your thoughts about what kind of relationships is that. You argue that globalization is not the harbinger of nationalism decline. On the contrary, actually, mm -hmm. it's a historically kind of the constitutive of each other. So I'm wondering if you can elaborate on this relationship. Yes. Okay, so, so I think from, from uh, about late 80s and early 90s, there was a lot of uh, kind of uh, literature, particularly in sociology, on arguing that the nation states are gone, you know, that we are entering the, the, you know, this period of globalization where uh, corporations have, have become much more visible, much more prevalent, and, you know, everything is open. Uh, as, as, as often put, uh, geography becomes history. Uh, so in a sense, you know, new technologies and new modes, modes of communication, cheaper transport allowed people, you know, to, to be much more mobile and, and things like that. Uh, so in, in that context, the, the idea was that, you know, Ulrich Beck and others and Giddens and others have argued that there is really, uh, you know, people will, will change in a sense that we will have global individuals. So we will all become, small, more, become much more individualized and less uh, attached to particular nation states. But I, uh, what I argue in the book, and this is what I've been arguing for many years in different books, that this is not going to happen. It hasn't been happening in a sense that, you know, often nationalism, Often does the opposite. Sorry, globalization does the opposite. It often reinforces nationalism in different ways. Uh, first of all, we, we you know globalization itself is not a new phenomenon. We had different waves of globalization historically, and people have analyzed them. Particularly, uh, you know, the one that we we can talk about uh, uh, without any any kind of uh, 
uh, question is 19th century, late 19th century. You know, the economy was much more, uh, you know, kind of less fair, developed and oriented, and uh, there was greater mobility of population from from different continents, you know, from China, from India, from Europe, going to South uh, uh, and, and and North America, and and, and so on and so forth. Uh, there is obviously free trade uh, uh, dominating as as, as, a, as a kind of a principle. Uh, form of economic uh, policy uh, throughout the world, influenced by British dominance, obviously, and, and things like that. So, so we do see a lot of similarities, let's say, between that way of globalization and the one, the current one, or the more recent one, because we are not really sure whether globalization now is happening or it, it's stalled to some extent. That's another question. But what we see is, is really that the late 19th century nationalism is still quite weak. You know, imperialism is much much more prominent, much stronger as an ideology. Uh, and we do have a scramble for Africa and we do have a kind of colonial expansion, which ultimately leads to, to conflict over colonies and the First World War. Uh, but uh, nationalism is there, but it's really not very deep, not spread beyond middle classes, essentially in most contexts of Western Europe and Eastern Europe, even less so. Um, so, so, so in a sense, the, the link between globalization and nationalism in the late 19th century is, is, is not so uh, kind of visible, not prominent, uh, as it is uh, particularly now, you know, in, 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 since 1990s onwards, when we, we see states becoming much more nationalized, literacy rates have gone up dramatically all over the world. Uh, states are have a much more infrastructural capacity, so there is greater uh, organizational grounding of the states. Uh, states control and, and possess better uh, communication system, better transport system. They can control their borders more. You know, people have passports, which we, they didn't have in the late 19th century, and many kind of ID documents and things like that. Uh, so in a sense, they, uh, we, we can say that nationalism is much more grounded throughout the world. Uh, in, in that sense, when globalization starts, it's, it's really, it, it, what it can do is it just works, it has to work with what's already there. And, and these are really nationalized populations. So the fact that people eat, uh, you know, Chinese or Japanese or or French or Mexican food doesn't make them, as, as Anthony Smith would say, Mexican or Chinese. <laughs> you know, so in a sense, you do you are aware of cultural difference. There is a cultural difference. It's much more visible. You know, you can see it on on television. You can see it in social media. But it, that doesn't undermine really one's own sense of who they are. It, it, it often does the opposite. It reinforces this nation-centric understanding of the world. So the understanding is that there are other nations out there, and we are, you know. Uh, one of them, and we might be better in one thing and not necessarily better in other things. So, so in a sense, uh, nationalism becomes really, truly global. So globalization reinforces nationalism rather than undermining. Thank you so much. Um, and you mentioned, um, I think, very relevant for, for today's conversation will be definitely the theme of, of Ukraine, which we definitely don't want to kind of uh, cover and uh, explicitly. But um, I would I'll be interesting to hear your thoughts on the relationship between nationalism and maybe geopolitics in the light of what we're having here, and maybe even nationalism and violence. The theme which you've worked a lot in, in your contribution to the uh, sociology of violence, and how does that work with imperialist expansionism in a way, and the, the role of nationalism? What function does it have, and what kind of interactional dynamics, if you will, it kind of uh, fosters in a way? Yes. 
Okay, so, so, so this is an important point, I think, because we do often associate nationalism with violence. And, and uh, you know, this obviously goes from, uh, you know, when you think of nationalism, you often think about 1930s and 40s, Europe and Japan and far right and war. Uh, but then, you know, nationalism, there was some link between nationalism and violence, not only on the, on the right, but also on the left in the 50s and uh, from 50s until uh, early 80s with post-colonial movements. So we do have a revolutionary violence in Algeria and particularly in other places. Uh, we do see obviously link between nationalism and, and violence in 1990s in, you know, Yugoslavia and Rwanda. Uh, in the Caucasus, particularly obviously in Georgia, historically knows so well, you know, in you know, many wars fought uh, in, from 90s until 2008. Uh, and nationalism also associated with genocide, uh, in some instances with terrorism, you know, Sri Lanka and, 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 and so on and so forth, uh, Northern Ireland and, and so on. But what I would argue is that nationalism is not uh, inherently linked with violence. So, in a sense, you know, it can be linked to violence, uh, but uh, a lot of nationalism is not violent. So we do have a kind of cultural nationalism. We do have a, much of this uh, uh, everyday banal nationalism, which, you know, it, it often really involves the production of nation-centric ideas and nation-centric tropes and, you know, symbols. And, and they don't really have anything to do with violence. Uh, sporting competitions, uh, in, in, you know, the things that a lot of the everyday nationalism scholarship analyzes, like beauty, pageants, uh, consumption practices, Euro, Eurovision, <laughs> that's, a, that's a form of kind of this entertainment nationalism, if you like, where people, you know, send their songs and they're at display and, you know, and there is a competition of some sort. National cuisine is also a form of nationalism, you know, of everyday life and uh, tourism, you know, a lot of what Lorenzo, who's here, <laughs> has, has analyzed, you know, extensively in museums and, you know, all these things. So, so, so in a sense, uh, what, what, I, what I try to do in the book and, and or perhaps in, in the previous book on nationalism as well, I try to say, uh, you know, that most of nationalism is really uh, the way how grounding, grounding of nationalism works is through habituality. You know, through through every day, through invisible, if you like, to routine. But there are instances when nationalism can erupt, if you like, and this is what you know. There came in moments of you know collective effervescence, but violence uh, cannot last. That's the thing. You know, you know, as human beings, we know in individual encounters whenever you see violent acts, they they they're explosive. You know, two people start fighting, but that doesn't last long. It cannot last. You know, that's the thing. You know, this is what Randall Collins has analyzed extensively in, in his work. That uh, you know, uh, as human beings, it's not easy for us as individuals to be violent. We have to be really primed to do. We have to be trained. We have to be policed by social organizations and most ordinary human beings are, are not very competent at violence, you know, so you have to, violence requires certain skills, but also a certain moral uh, uh, issues, you know, you have to be, most people will find violence repugnant, so in a sense, you, it's, it, it doesn't come naturally, uh, so in that sense, violent encounters, as Collins would argue, create fear, create tension, and you have to overcome that, you know, tension. Uh, so often violent uh, episodes uh, are, are highly emotionally charged. You know, we, you know, if, whenever we are, uh, we find ourselves in a situation of, of violence, most people will, will be, you know, uh, will react emotionally to this. You know, this, this is not something that, that is everyday, that it's common. So in a sense, uh, uh, the, the key issue for me is really the role of organizations. If you want to have sustained violence, you require organizational 
power. You need organizations, you need states, you need militaries, you need police, you need trained professionals, uh, uh, while the, the kind of emotional uh, outbursts are rare. They cannot last. So that's the thing with, with nationalism and violence. Nationalism, if it was violent all the time, it wouldn't be so powerful. It is powerful precisely because it's not violent most of the time. Most of the time it's, it's routine, it's everyday, it's, you know, it, it, it's reproduced in this. So, so violent nationalism is difficult to generate and also difficult to sustain over long periods of time. So it tends to be short, explosive episodes uh, rather, this, rather than this routine uh, uh, normality. So, so the good one of the important questions I think for nationalism studies is, is analyzing this. You know how we move from routine nationalism to violence, uh, and and that obviously happens, but it, it doesn't happen often. Uh, uh, so, so uh, you know it, it, this is I, th I think one of the one of the topics that hasn't been analyzed much. Randall Collins has analyzed a little bit. I'm just reading his new book just published now, where he he kind of makes some interesting uh, analysis of. Of uh, you know how uh, what was happening, for example, with the storming of Capitol in in, in uh, you know in, in during the Trump administration, you know how this emotional energy was generated in that particular moment, how that nationalism you know became violent in American context. So, so we do have some some studies of this, but it's not hasn't been studied enough. So that's the thing. What I'm arguing is such that uh, nationalism and violence are not necessarily. Uh, you know, uh, always linked, uh, you know, it, violence, nationalism can be violent, but it doesn't have to be. Most of the time it isn't, but there are certain mechanisms that can, uh, that are worth studying more extensively to see when banal nationalism becomes violent nationalism. Thank you. Fascinating. Um, and also, um, maybe last question on my behalf before we um, ask a few um, colleagues and scholars here in the audience if they want to ask questions. Um, you also look at the neoliberal capitalism in a way. And you you, mm -hmm. you, you, understand, you you examine how it actually fits off the individualization of different interactions. And I, I wonder if, if, if briefly you can reflect on, the, on this sort of um, mm -hmm. component of, of this nation-centric understanding of, of, of reality, yeah. but also its relationship to the um, neoliberal uh, capital. Sure. Yes, yeah, so, so we, traditionally we, we, we had, uh, you know, kind of approaches in, in nationalism studies which would emphasize strongly the role of capitalism or would just deny this altogether. <laughs> so, so what I try to do is to say is that capitalism is important, particularly in, in, in the kind of uh, in the, in the, in the context of the last uh, you know, 100 years or so, uh, but it may not be the only factor. So, so in a sense, uh, we do have obviously nationalism outside of the capitalist context, like, you know, North Korea or or, or Cuba, or you know, Laos, or some of these states. And if you look at the communist states, uh, they were fairly nationalist, despite being nominally internationalist. Uh, you know, the way how they've legitimized themselves was was fairly nationalist, but in in a particular way. You know, as, as it used to be a, a formula, a, a, a national in form and socialist in content, but in reality, it was the opposite. Really, <laughs> it was very nationalist in in, in, uh, in form. Uh, so, so it, it is interesting for me to to see, you know, uh, when capitalism uh, has has important impact on nationalism and, and how how that impact uh, develops. So, so one of the chapters in the book really looks at the private military corporations, which are seen as the epitome of really of neoliberal capitalism. So you have a, a soldiers who fight for money, you know. So they are often referred to as mercenaries. 
and you know, and, and they have no loyalty to any state. So you, you can buy them. They work for private corporations, and you go to different parts of the world and fight there for money. So, so and obviously, on the surface, that looks very much like something that has nothing to do with nationalism. It's all to do with capitalism. Uh, but what I try to argue is that you know, a story is much more complex than that. You know, in a sense that. I show how you know from uh, there are a lot of kind of research done on, on these on these uh, private corporations and individuals who end up working for for these private uh, military uh, uh, security corporations. And what you see is that many of them come actually from the you know uh, uh, military background. So they they were often socialized and educated in in a kind of very nationalist environment: of the U.S. military, British military, Israeli military, and so on. Um, and often uh, many private corporations really employ people from the same country. Uh, so we, we, we had lots of these, like in South Africa, traditionally before the apartheid, a lot of these were really Afrikaners, you know, very much, uh, you know, a product of that system. So uh, later on, when, when after the apartheid uh, system, they became uh, private corporations, but their loyalty is still very much this kind of idea of, of South African state before the apartheid, essentially fairly racist, but, but they're also, uh, you know, black uh, uh, South Africans who are part of that system, which is a bit strange. Then we said, see a lot of American former soldiers, a lot of British former soldiers, and now Russians, although Russian case with the Wagner is more complicated because there is much more direct influence of the state there. But what's interesting for me is really to see how these people see themselves and often they do they do identify very strongly with the nations, even though they work for private corporations and they are paid. Uh, but you do f find a lot of similarities with the, with the kind of professional armies here as well. So that's what I was trying to illustrate in this point on, on this example of private corporations, that nationalism is so embedded, so grounded, uh, that even when, when we work as private uh, in, individuals, uh, you know, a lot of what we do is shaped by our, our national beliefs. In a sense, this is something that, that it's, uh, that it's quite stronger than, and, and capitalism contributes, to, you know, it, it influences this. So often capitalism and nationalism can, can coalesce, can work easily, and they do that. You know, and there is a, there is a book recently, uh, I think Torenke has interviewed uh, Christian Jokin on neoliberal nationalism. So he, he deals with this much more extensively in the contemporary context. Uh, so, so, so yeah, that's a phenomenon itself, neoliberal nationalism. Right, so uh, we will continue now uh, with with another question, which I was wondering to ask you, um, especially, I mean, having you on, on, on this interview, of course, allows us uh, to discover so much of the spectrum of relationship between nationalism and other phenomena, and one of them is uh, religion. And I'm wondering if you're... Um, if you give us your thoughts about these relationships, I mean, Pro Baker had this typology, other people mm. get us in, in orthodox context, it's kind of symphonic relationships and how this works along the lines of nationalism and different discourses, others look at spiritual geopolitics and et cetera. I'm wondering what's your take on these relationships? What kind of relationships is there between nationalism and religion? Yeah, this, this is a big topic. As you know yourself, that's what you study as well. So, so in a sense, obviously, for me, it's interesting historically, you know, how this has changed. So in the 19th century, and let's say if we focus on, on, on the Balkans, because I know a little bit more about that part of the world, uh, we see how, uh, uh, you know, Orthodox churches are, are, are fairly antagonistic towards nationalism. They see nationalism as a product of French Revolution, something to do with liberalism, uh, something to do with, uh, you know, individualism and, uh, you know, ideas which are very much secular, you know, and, and, and you know, highly so, as they were, obviously, with the French Revolution. Uh, on the other hand, a uh, lot of people, uh, you know, a lot of kind of top clergy in, in uh, uh, 
Greek Orthodox Church in particular, where you know they, they found the modus vivendi uh, living in in a, in a kind of uh, Ottoman Empire, with particularly with the millet system, where they they had certain privileges. Uh, so in a sense, uh, nationalism was seen at, at, at that time as a threat, you know, as a threat to the institution of the church, uh, uh, both in terms of ideology and in terms of organization, but also in terms of uh, positions of, of, of kind of top clergy. And we find that, uh, you know, also kind of scholarship in that period shows that. But then this changes, obviously, after the, you know, uh, many Balkan states gain independence, particularly, I'm talking here about Orthodox uh, Christian churches, they become much more embedded in the idea of, of nationhood. Essentially, they become the beacon of nationhood. So they represent the nation. You know, Serbian Orthodox Church and Bulgarian Orthodox Church and uh, later Georgian and Armenian and others uh, uh, kind of uh, to take over the mantle of, of, of nationhood, in, in, but under particular guise. So in a sense, the idea is that nationalism is important but it has to be part of the, of, the, of the religious story. So in a sense, the focus here is very much on a, on a, on a sort of primordial interpretation of the nation, that nation and church are one. And we can trace that, particularly in the context, making links with the, with the medieval states in Bulgaria, medieval Bulgarian state and medieval Serbian state and so on and so forth. Um, uh, even more so obviously in Armenia and, 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 and places like that. And then church becomes, uh, uh, you know, attempts to to kind of uh, desecularize nationalism in some respects, and and we see that uh, obviously uh, uh, you know happening uh, uh, during the communist period, which, when churches, although the story is more complicated because obviously some some uh, clergy were quite uh, lenient, you could say, towards the communist authorities. You can say, well, others were more more dissident type of, of uh, but but you know in, in some instances they, they were perceived as as, as these beacons of nationalism against the, the godless secular teachings of, of, of the communist state which itself also as I would argue was nationalist but in a different way you know, articulated a different nationalist message and then uh, as a result of this legacy after the communism churches become so prominent so visible and most political parties use that, use that religious rhetoric. In, in some contexts, let's say in the Balkans, obviously the fact that uh, church, uh, you know, religion is, is one of the few really main differences between, let's say, Serb, Serbian, Croatian, and uh, Bosniak uh, populations uh, has played an important part. So religion becomes very politicized. So in that sense, nationalism embraces religious uh, rhetoric, religious symbols, and, and, and some churches do that as well. So in a sense, it's very hard to draw the line between because nationalism becomes superficially, uh, uh, you know, religious. I mean, it has nothing to do with beliefs. It has all to do with symbolism and political statements. So suddenly, you see a, a people in Serbia or in Montenegro who wouldn't uh, go to religious services during the you know, communist period, not because they were that was not allowed, but it was not. You know, they were, they were fairly many of them were fairly secularized, uh, and then after the communism, churches become full suddenly. But then, then late, lately, again, they're not full. So, so it's, it, is, it is more to do with symbolism. Uh, and it has more to do with kind of marking the differences between who is Serb, who is Croat, who is Bosnian, Muslim, or Bosniak, and, and so on. So, so in that sense, it is a complicated story. And it is different in different parts of the world. I mean, uh, in, in Irish context, it's also interesting. I don't know if I have time to reflect on that. 
because traditionally, obviously, uh, uh, the Catholic Church in Ireland was seen as, as the beacon of, of nationalism, although it, it's very similar story in, in 19, early 19th century when the Catholic Church aligned to some extent with, with the British Empire, because also had, you know, there were reasons for, for top clergy to, to benefit from that. But that changes later on, and then church becomes symbol of Irish uh, independence and, and, and diversity and, and things like that. And then church becomes quite monopolistic. We have really good books on this. Uh, Tom Inglis's moral monopoly book really great analyzing the way how church maintained this moral monopoly within the Irish society. Uh, and, and it also nationalism played an important part here because you know, nationalism was defined by, by Catholicism. So essentially you couldn't be Irish if you're not Catholic. In a sense, if you're a Protestant, if you're an atheist or something like that, you wouldn't be a full Irish in a sense. So that's... That's important. But that has changed, obviously, with, with, with the uh, various uh, abuses, you know, the, the, what we followed what was happening, church was quite delegitimized. So here you see in, in Ireland quite different development, much more, uh, you know, distance from the church and, and, and Irish nationalism becoming much more secular and much more kind of uh, vetted also to European project and, and more, more international, if you like. And and another another theme which you ask in this book, of course, and in your previous work, especially your book Identity as Ideology, Understanding Ethnicity and Nationalism, um, you, you examine um, do nation, national identities exist. And while you say, while today the majority of the world populations perceive themselves through the prism of specific national identities, our predecessors did not and could not see the world in such terms. And I wonder if you can elaborate how they saw themselves, what categories operated then? Yeah, so so we do obviously now, uh, we don't have surveys on illiterate peasants in you know, 16th, 17th century. Uh, so it's hard for us to be certain about you know, how people identify themselves, but you know, from variety of sources, we do we come to similar conclusions. And I think most of the, contemporary scholarship uh, uh, in history and in, uh, in other fields of historical sociology uh, emphasizes that before the, the kind of French and American revolutions and uh, in, in some parts of the world, obviously much later, majority of the people couldn't really identify in these, these categories because they were not available to be identified for one to identify. So if you live, live in a small village, you're born in that village, you, 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 you might go to the next village and get married in that next village. Uh, it was, it's very difficult to conceptualize work in, the, in, in, these, in, in the sense of larger, larger entities, particularly because people did live in empires and you know, kingdoms and, these, these, and borders of these entities were constantly shifting and changing. And empires don't really uh, uh, emphasize cultural similarities, nation states do. Uh, so, so in that sense, the loyalties tended to be much, much smaller and much more local uh, uh, in terms of territory. So your village mattered to you or few villages, but also uh, kinship, clan, uh, you know, families, extended families. Uh, and if we are talking about more universal ones, that's religion, obviously. But again, religion was still differently. You know, we know in anthropology, religion, all these kind of debates about the the, you know, the, the elite version and, and the popular version of religion and, you know, what, what, how the religion functions and operates. But still, religion obviously is, is much more transnational and, and couldn't uh, uh, develop in a sense. So it's really, when you, you need these uh, institutions in place uh, for, you know, 
that nation states create for people to start really thinking about themselves in these abstract categories, such as a nation. So for that, as Gellner rightly said, you need high literacy rates, you need standardized educational systems, you need also standardized languages. Uh, and, and that's another point I think which, which is really important uh, both for Anderson and Gellner and, and other scholars is this emphasis on, uh, you know, you, you need to have a, a common cultural idea that is shared across millions of people. If, if the language is not standardized, you're actually talking about variety of dialects uh, spoken, you know, a few villages have one dialect, then you go further away, there's a different dialect. And if you, if you go, you know, 100 kilometers away, it might be difficult to understand uh, people. So, so you need really language which is standardized, uh, academy supervised and imposed by the state through the educational system. Then people start thinking, okay, this is the language you know, that is French or Italian or German and, and, and everybody can now start uh, visualizing this nation through the language and but also many other things. So, so in that sense, obviously modernity is important. You know, without modernity, we cannot talk about nationhood, nationhood in a sociological sense. Uh, so so there, there is an element of this nation, nation of elite version of nationhood that, that did exist earlier. But but as, as a kind of mass phenomenon, it is inevitably modern. You know, it is uh, a very big thank you um, to Professor Malisovic for your for your time. Reminder to our listeners, um, grounding nationalism, Randall Collins and sociology of nationhood is a very, very interesting um, article also, which, which, which where, where um, Professor Mansevich examines the ways nationalism has been theorized and, and contemporary sociology, but also, of course, the book of today, Grounded Nationalism, that we, we talked about uh, by Cambridge University Press. And um, so that's all about it. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs>